reminder, uh, we're going to have our annual church Christmas dinner on Sunday, December the 21st. The church will provide the uh, the meat, and if you would like to sign up to bring a side or a dessert, there's a sign-up sheet out in the fellowship hall. The other announcement is that on the as you go out the back door towards the fellowship hall, on the table to your left, there are a couple of pieces of paper there to check your contact information. And so you need to make sure that uh, you, you, we have the correct email address, cell number, whatever, uh, so that in case of, an, of uh, something that comes up with inclement weather, we could have an ice storm. You never know. It has happened. Uh, we could have snow. Ten years ago, it snowed on Christmas Day. We had a white Christmas. I was in Mexico. We didn't have a white Christmas. So, um, Anyhow, we occasionally have some, some reason where we have to uh, cancel class, something of that nature. So, And also we have various announcements that we do send out to folks, so we need to have your uh, e- correct email address so you can check, check there to make sure we have all that correct. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this evening, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure that you are in right relationship with God through confession of sin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we have this time to come together to focus upon your word, to be reminded that history has a purpose, that you have a plan, and that there is a future destiny for all of us, especially as church-age believers. Father, as we continue our study in the future kingdom and your plan for the kingdom, we pray that you would help us to understand this as it specifically relates to our eternal destiny, our future, as members of the bride of Christ who will rule and reign with him when he returns to establish his kingdom. Now, Father, we pray that you might help us to understand this because it's the motivation, the primary motivation, for living our life today as unto unto you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study on the Millennial Kingdom. This is the third session now that we've done going through the Millennium. And I'm focusing tonight on the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant, the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant. And what we have seen is that in God's prophetic plan, the future of the, the future is laid out in terms of the end of the church age, which ends with the rapture, uh, where we meet the Lord in the air. This is known as the pre-tribulation rapture. Sometime after the end of the church age, there's a certain uh, period of transition period there before the tribulation begins. There's seven years of tribulation. This, this fits within Daniel's panorama of the last 490 years 
that were decreed by God for Israel. The cutting off of the Messiah happened seven years prior to the end of that 490-year period. There is a pause in God's timetable between the 482nd year and the beginning of that 483rd or between the 483rd year and the beginning of the 484th year until the 490th year. Those are the last seven years. So we have the rapture and then the tribulation. The tribulation ends with the second coming of Christ to the earth. And then we have the judgment seat of, uh, or the judgments that occur at the end of the tribulation, which includes the judgment of the Antichrist, the false prophet, the judgment of Satan and the demons where they are uh, cast into the abyss before Satan is released at the end of the millennial kingdom. And then we have this 1,000 years of the kingdom of the Messiah where the Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament covenants are fulfilled. Just by way of review, the word millennium, which we use to refer to this term, is taken from a Latin word milli, which means a thousand, and it's used to refer to this thousand-year reign of Christ. The Greek word for a thousand was kilioi, and the early church referred to those who believed Christ would return before this kingdom was established were called kilias. And kiliasm dominated the theology of the early church for at least the first 200 years. It was only as a result of the advent of, of, uh, of allegorical or non-literal interpretation that people began to shift away from a premillennial view or kiliasm, and that began primarily with a church father by the name of Origen, and it became established as orthodoxy by uh, Augustine, who was the bishop of Hippo, and this occurred in the uh, late 4th century. So basically, from the end of the 4th century until you get into the 1500s, the church, as it's known during that time, there's only one church, you don't have a fragmentation. It's what we would refer to as Protestants as the Roman Catholic Church, but Roman Catholicism per se doesn't actually develop. It's, it progressively comes in. It doesn't act actively become what we think of as Roman Catholicism until around somewhere between 600 and 800. And But what dominates from about... Um, three, 390 to 400, somewhere in there, until 1500, for ele- or 1500 to 1550, so for 1100 to 1200 years, everybody's thinking within this allegorical framework. Everybody's thinking that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom where Christ is ruling in absentia in heaven. And so this non-literal way of interpreting Scripture dominates, and so nobody's developing any biblical theology based on a literal interpretation of prophecy. So there's no thought. In fact, premillennialism is a a heresy punishable by being burned at the stake. So nobody's thinking or developing a premillennial theology or a dispensational views or anything like that, even though there are people during this era that do hold to these views, especially in the early part, there's there's clearly evidence of this historically. That you have people such as uh, pseudo Ephraim. He's called that because he wrote under a pseudonym uh, of a earlier church father. 
And he clearly believed that the rapture of the saints would occur prior to this final period of of tribulation that would come upon the earth. Now, he had a short tribulation. He didn't have a seven-year tribulation, but he's not mid-trib because he didn't have a seven-year tribulation with Jesus returning in the middle of that period. He just saw the tribulation as a three-and-a-half-year period. So he sees he definitely saw the rapture as coming before. And one reason I point that out is because you will consistently hear people who who come up with this very tired critique of pre, uh, pre-tribulation rapture that Darby, John Nelson Darby invented this in the 1830s, that nobody before John Nelson Darby ever taught this, and that's just uh, erroneous. In fact, there is a video that's going to be released sometime in January put out by some, some, uh, some group of theologians attacking the pre-trib rapture. And this is one of the things that they, that they're, they are bringing out is that this, the rapture wasn't invented until Darby. Darby got it from a, a, uh, ecstatic utterance from a young girl named Margaret McDonald who had this ecstatic utterance in a meeting of Irvingites, which is sort of an early form of the charismatic movement in the 1830s in England. And it's all just garbage. It's all lies. And it just shows that the opponents of truth, uh, whether we're talking about political truth, whether we're talking about theological truth, uh, the opponents of truth always have to manufacture lies uh, against their opponents, and that's exactly what this is. And so, um, you know, for, for a thousand years, what dominated was this amillennial view. And this is a chart we covered amillennialism, their belief that there was no literal earthly kingdom, that a thousand was merely a symbolic number, and that the kingdom is spiritual, Christ reigns from his throne in heaven, and it is coterminous or simultaneous with the church age, and it ends with the second coming of Christ when all judgment takes place, and then we go into into eternity. Amillennialism continued to dominate in Lutheranism and in Calvinism, and it still dominates, although in Calvinism you also have the rise of another movement called post-millennialism that developed in the 1600s. And this was the idea that the church through the Holy Spirit would expand uh, exponentially on the earth until it brought in the kingdom. And then Jesus would return after the kingdom was established. So this post-millennialism means Jesus comes after the millennium is over. But again, it's not a literal thousand year reign. A thousand is still taken in a a symbolic manner. And those who believe in a literal historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible hold to premillennialism based on Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 through uh, 6, and the many references there to a thousand. So why do we believe in a premillennial view? Well, as I pointed out in the previous lessons, first of all, because there are unfulfilled eternal covenants that God has made with Israel. They need to be fulfilled. He has promised this, them a land. He's promised them an eternal king king and kingdom. And he has promised them certain spiritual realities in the new covenant. None of these have come to pass yet. There have been specific promises about the Messiah. Only about a third of the messianic predictions have been fulfilled. 
only about a third because they relate to the suffering Messiah, not the reigning glorified Messiah. And one of the failures in Jewish theology is to make a distinction between the suffering Messiah and the reigning Messiah. And this was the problem when Jesus came at the first advent was that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious thought of that day, expected a reigning, conquering Messiah rather than a suffering. They didn't realize that the cross had to occur before the crown, not the other way around. And so the promises, the predictions about the glorious rule and reign of the Messiah have yet to be fulfilled. So that's a second reason we believe in a future Jewish kingdom. And a third reason is that when we study the passages on the kingdom, that it shows that the nature, the character of the kingdom is essentially Jewish. It is centered in Jerusalem. There is a temple in Jerusalem and that all of the nations in the world will flock to Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem as a focal point of the spiritual life in the millennial kingdom. Now, this chart shows the basis of what we're looking at, what we've been looking at in the previous lessons, and that is that the Old Testament, there were promises that were made, and these promises have yet to be fulfilled. We insert the chart of the dispensations, and we see that it was at the very beginning of this time period in Genesis chapter 12 through, uh, through 18 that God gave the foundational covenant to Abraham. And there were three aspects to that, which everybody should know and be able to say in their sleep, and that is land, seed, and blessing. The land aspect was expanded in the real estate or land covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and this is not truly fulfilled until the millennial kingdom when Israel will be brought back to the land. And that's what we've studied in the previous lessons is all of the predictions in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and in many of the minor prophets where God says that he will bring his people back from their being scattered to the uh, four corners of the earth, they'll, they'll be restored to the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for the first time in history, they will fully conquer the land that God gave them. The second covenant is the Davidic covenant, the promise that one of David's descendants would sit on a throne, an eternal throne, and rule from Jerusalem, a literal throne from a literal geographical location. This is the Davidic covenant. It's not fulfilled until Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. And then at the same time, the new covenant is established, and it's with that new covenant that was with Israel and Judah. It's not with the church. We do not participate in the new covenant as a covenant partner. We are identified with Christ. And so I believe that that uh, part of the way in which we benefit from the blessings of the new covenant is through our identification with Christ on that side of the covenant, but also because just as Gentiles throughout history have been blessed by the covenant God made with Abraham, God's the party of the first part, Abraham's the party of the second part, and God says to Abraham, because of this contract that I'm establishing with you, I will bless all the nations. And so worldwide blessing to all the nations or the Gentiles is part of that legal contract that God made with Abraham. The new covenant expands upon that, and in the new covenant, God makes a contract with Israel, and he says on the basis of that, there's going to be worldwide blessing, and so the new covenant establishes that. So 
The Abrahamic covenant stipulated a specific piece of real estate. We've studied through that. And Genesis 13, 14 through 17 identifies that as from the river of Egypt. In the last lesson, I went through the biblical reasons why that's not, um, that, that's not the, um, uh, that's not the Nile. And in fact, I came up, I'd forgotten about this until just now, but I'll have to come back and cover this again next time. But I came, I found in going through some slides that I had when I was preparing some of the uh, lessons for our trip to Israel, a, a really great sl- geographical slide of the Nile, which shows that uh, on that Easternmost tributary of the Nile, which is uh, one of the rivers that is uh, that is I, sometimes identified as the River of Egypt, that that river was actually. Alan asked this question the last time. That river was actually uh, east of the bitter or west of the bitter lakes and these other lakes that existed above the Red Sea. And so Goshen was located between these upper tributaries of the Nile, but they were still west of the areas above the Red Sea. So uh, they would have, if if the, the if if they were there, this would impact how how you understand the borders of, of Egypt. But the language is very clear uh, that the. Uh, Wadi El Arish is really that that river of Egypt that's spoken of there. So from the river of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates, and we'll see a map of that a little later on, that that's a specific piece of real estate. Uh, the land covenant promises a regathering of Israel to the land in Deuteronomy 29. And then third, we saw the reestablishment of the throne of David. We're starting working on that, and that's where we are right now. So... Uh, the second major thing that we're looking at, first of all, we look at the land promise. Second, we're looking at God's promise to David in the Davidic covenant. He promised to reestablish the throne of David. The key passages for that are the passages for the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7, 11 through 16, and First Chronicles 17, 10 through 14, which we covered earlier in this series. And then there's a reconfirmation of that covenant that is given in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a meditation on the Davidic covenant and, and shows the reaffirmation of that particular covenant. It's also the basis for other passages such as Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, Isaiah 16, 5, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, Jeremiah 33, 14 to 26, and Amos, uh, Amos 9, 11 and 12. And we're going to look at a couple of those passages in a minute. So here's the graphic on the Davidic covenant, giving the key passages for the covenant and focusing on the three elements that God promised an eternal house, which basically means a dynasty, that David would found a dynasty in his family. The dynasty of Saul is cut off. Now, we're going to get into all of that, which is fascinating, when we begin our study in a few weeks of uh, 1 Samuel. So we have the eternal house, and then God promised an eternal kingdom. So this eternal dynasty is going to rule over an eternal kingdom, according to 2 Samuel 7, 12c and 1 Chronicles 17, 14, and there would be an eternal throne. Now, if the one who rules is going to be eternal, then that indicates uh, deity. He is eternal. So this this embedded within the Davidic covenant is a hint 
that the one who fulfills the covenant is not just a human descendant of David, but he also has divine attributes. Now, let's just look at a few of these passages. Many of these are familiar, and as we go through the different covenant fulfillments, we'll see that there's an overlap in the passages. So I just want to point some of these phrases out to you in these verses without going uh, through every single verse to show and just to emphasize how many times in Scripture we see references to the fulfillment of these covenants. Well, it's Christmas month. It's December. We celebrate Christmas in uh, about uh, three weeks. So we'll be quoting this passage a lot, and it's the background for a number of, of hymns. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. This clearly indicates that the Messiah is going to be human. He is given birth to. So there's a human nature uh, that is part of the person of the Messiah. And further, we're told the government will rest on his shoulders. That's the point that we're making here is the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in one who rules over this kingdom. The government will rest on his shoulders. And among his names, we see that he is this one who is born as a child. It will be called Mighty God and the Father of Eternity. That phrase, Eternal Father, is not the best translation. The way it's set up in the Hebrew, it means Father of Eternity, which means that he is someone who is eternal. It's describing an attribute. It's not saying that he is the Father. He's saying that he is the Father of Eternity or that he is eternal in and of himself. And then in verse 7, there's going to be no end to the increase of his government. It's eternal, that eternal throne, eternal dynasty, eternal kingdom, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So there's a direct statement that the child who is born will sit on the throne of David and rule over the Davidic kingdom. And I want you to note as we go through these that it again and again these passages characterize his rule. And again and again, we'll see this something about justice and righteousness, that when he establishes his kingdom, it is characterized by perfect justice and perfect righteousness. A few chapters later, Isaiah says in Isaiah 16:5, a throne will even be established in loving kindness. A throne indicates rule. A judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. So that tent of David refers to the, the, the dynasty of David. Uh, describing it as like a household with the phrase tent. Later on, we'll see it referred to as a booth, that the booth of David. So it's the same thing. It's referring to that dynasty of the household, the descendants of David. And the one who sits on the throne will do what? He'll seek justice and promote righteousness. So we see that emphasis again. In Jeremiah, we read, that uh, days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. This indicates a descendant of David. The concept of branch indicates that it is something that comes, the, the imagery that's used in the scripture is that there's this, this stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. There's this stump that is cut down, and that refers to the, uh, uh, the destruction of the kingdom in 586 B.C. and roughly the end of the line of the descendants of, of David. What, appears to, what it appears to be is that it ends, but there's going to be a shoot or a branch that comes out from that stump. And this is the uh, a reference um, to uh, the Messiah and that he's called a righteous branch. And he will reign as king. What's he going to do? 
He's going to perform righteousness and justice. Again and again, we see this same thing showing up. Isn't that interesting? Jeremiah 33, 14, and 15. Again, days are coming, so it's set in the future. Uh, God is predicting what will take place. Uh, days are coming when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken. To whom? To the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This relates to promises God made to Judah. This does not include the Gentiles. This is a focal point on, on, on Israel and has not yet been fulfilled. So for God to be God, he has to fulfill this at some point in the future. And he says in verse 15, In those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David uh, to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness upon the earth. He's a, the righteous branch again. That has not yet happened. goes on to say in verse 17, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So there is this descendant who is going to sit on the throne uh, forever and ever. Uh, Ezekiel has similar language. In Ezekiel thirty four twenty three. my servant David will feed them and be their shepherd. He will rule over them. And this isn't an allusion to Christ as the greater son of David because the Messiah will rule over all the nations, but David resurrected, will rule over uh, Israel in the millennial kingdom. Uh, Verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. So if we're going to interpret this literally, this isn't some sort of allegorical reference to the Messiah, to to Jesus. This is a reference to, uh, to David. Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David will be king over them. Uh, Ezekiel 37:25 David my servant will be their prince forever. So this indicates that there's that that the Lord Jesus Christ rules over the earth, rules over the messianic kingdom and then the one who rules over Israel per se is going to be uh, going to be David. Hosea 3:5 reiterates the same principle. Afterward the sons of David will return. See that's the land promise and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. That addresses the spiritual life of, the, of Israel. Amos 9.11, the passage I mentioned earlier, uses the phrase, the fallen booth of David, that, that it appeared to be, to, the Davidic dynasty appeared to have ended with the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. Even though Zerubbabel was a member of the house of David, uh, his line uh, died out. Uh, after the uh, return from Babylon, never really established itself as a kingdom again. And so God says he will raise up in the future the fallen booth of David and uses uh, imagery there uh, related to the fact that it's going to be restored in the kingdom. So what we've seen so far is that the Abrahamic covenant lays the foundation for everything with a promise of a future land a future blessing through the world, uh, worldwide blessing through the seed and this worldwide blessing culminates ultimately in the kingdom this is developed between these different covenants the land covenant the seed covenant and now the new covenant and this is really interesting it's difficult for a lot of people to interpret the new covenant we've had a lot when i covered the new covenant there were some good questions that were asked the new covenant speaks of the regeneration of israel 
Now, this raises a lot of questions for people, and I'm hoping I can answer some of those tonight as we look at this. What the New Covenant tells us, looking at the New Covenant passages, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and some of the other passages that talk about this everlasting covenant, is that this covenant is established with Israel at the beginning, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ returns to the earth. He defeats the armies of the Antichrist, sends the Antichrist and the false prophet to the lake of fire. He confines Satan and the demons to the abyss. There's the judgment of the uh, surviving Gentiles. There's a judgment of the surviving Jews. That's also referred to as the sheep and the goats judgment. And who goes into the millennial kingdom? Any unbelievers going into the millennial kingdom? Not a single unbeliever. So at that moment in time in the future, Jesus Christ has returned to the earth. He's vanquished his enemies, removed them from the earth. The only living human beings are going to be people who are already believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? Not a single unbeliever in their midst. That's going to solve the question that many of you have have asked about these passages that seem to indicate that God overrides their volition. Because when this new covenant is established, they've already chosen salvation. He's not overriding anybody's volition. He's talking about what he's going to do for those people who are already saved, who are alive in their mortal bodies, who are going to be going into the millennial kingdom. Now, they have a problem, and that is they still have a sin nature. But God is going to do something remarkable for the Jews. This doesn't apply to Gentiles, but it applies to Israel. And that's I don't understand how all of this takes place because uh, it's very difficult to look forward to a new environment and fully comprehend it, just as it was difficult for many people in the Old Testament to really understand what would take place in terms of salvation. So what we see is that under the new covenant, as we look at these passages, there will be new aspects, new features, new characteristics of regeneration that come into reality. They're not part of our regeneration experience, but they will be part of the regenerative experience of Jews under the new covenant in the millennial kingdom but not necessarily for Israel. So that's because the covenant is made with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. So we look at passages like Jeremiah 24, 7. God says, I will give them a heart to know me. Now, are they already saved? Yeah, they're already saved. So God's going, this is part of their sanctification. Now, in every dispensation, there are different features of sanctification. Sanctification in the church age is very, very different from sanctification in the Old Testament. Many of us have trouble reading the Old Testament and really coming to grips with the kind of sanctification they had in the Old Testament. Just imagine what it was like, what it would be like if somebody was an Old Testament believer and they read Paul or they read Peter in the New Testament and how difficult it would be for them to fathom what it would be like to have a, have a spiritual life based on the indwelling and filling and walking with God the Holy Spirit. 
and to have a completed salvation and to be baptized into Christ where the sin nature is no longer a tyrant on their soul. They could not comprehend that. It would be completely uh, different from anything that they that they experience. So God says that in this future time, he's going to give these already regenerate people, they have already trusted in Jesus as Messiah, he's going to give them a heart to know him. This is phase two. This isn't phase one. He says, for I am the Lord and they will be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. So it's talking about the fact that they have returned already. Then we look at passages like Jeremiah 50, verses 19 to 20. And God says here, I shall bring Israel back to his pasture. What covenant does that describe? That's the land covenant. I'm going to restore all of Israel back to the land that I promised. I shall bring Israel back to his pasture, and he will graze on Carmel and Bashan. Bashan is where? That's the Golan Heights. And his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilad. Ephraim is in Samaria. Ephraim was one of two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Minasha. And Ephraim is often used as a term representing all of the northern kingdom. They're often referred, and that's important for a passage we're going to look at in, uh, in just a minute. So Ephraim and Gilead, so what he is saying is that he's going to bring Israel back and restore them to the land. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search, a search will be made for the iniquity of Israel. And we're not going to find any sin in Israel because they're going to be obedient. A search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none, none. Wait a minute. Don't these mortals have sin natures? Sure, but the sin of Israel was what? Idolatry, a rejection of God, a seeking after other gods. That's the sin that's referred to here. That is the great sin of Israel, and there will be none. And he says, for the sins of Judah, but they will, and, and a search will be made for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I shall pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. You don't find what's not there because it's been wiped out by the payment for sin at the cross. And so there will be a pardon for those who have entered into the millennial kingdom. Their sins have been wiped out just as ours have been wiped out positionally uh, by the death of Christ. Then we get into Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20. God says, and I shall give them one heart. See, it's mentioned, this is mentioned in Jeremiah 24, 7 already. It's mentioned now in Ezekiel. I shall give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them. Now, they're already regenerate. So this is describing a new feature of their regenerate sanctification for the millennial kingdom. I will put a new spirit within them and shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. That's phase two in the millennial kingdom. Uh, Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Uh, Again, this is stated in Ezekiel 36, 24 and 25. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you into your own land, fulfillment of the land covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Are they already justified? Yeah, they're already justified. 
So this is related to their phase two sanctification in the millennial kingdom under the new covenant. Um, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. See, this is bringing in that aspect that the great sin of Israel was idolatry and violating the first uh, first two commandments of the of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall make no graven images. In, in verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So there's some new dimension here that is beyond our comprehension and our understanding. There is something new that takes place that changes their relationship to the sin nature. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So this relates to phase two sanctification, not phase one. You will live in the land I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Then we come to Ezekiel 20, verse 40, For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, there the whole house of Israel, all of them. See, that doesn't drop anybody. All of them means without exception. Now, we don't comprehend how this will be, but apparently what I would say is that the, the history of the discipline upon Israel has been so severe and the tribulation trauma so profound that no one is going to reject God, no Israelite is going to reject God or reject the truth during the tribulation. All, the whole house of, of Israel, all of them, notice the repetition there. He doesn't say the whole house of Israel, some of them. He's not just stating this totality one time. He makes it clear through repetition that all will serve in the land. There I shall accept them. There I shall seek your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your holy things. And Ezekiel thirty-seven fourteen, I will put my spirit within you. You will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have, have spoken and have done it. Okay, I want to talk just briefly about Ezekiel chapter 37. Not here. I'll get to it in an coming point. So let's talk about the transition to the millennium. The transition to the millennium is described in Revelation 19, 17 through 19. At the end, after the battle, the campaign of Armageddon is concluded, after the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated the armies of the Antichrist, after he has rescued the believers that are in Jerusalem, after the Mount of Olives is split, uh, between north and south so that a, an escape route opened up into uh, the Judean desert toward the Dead Sea. After all of that has taken place, John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God. This is to feast upon the carrion of all the dead from the campaign of Armageddon. Verse 18, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. 
And so this is the end of the campaign of Armageddon, and then there's going to be the judgment on the Antichrist, judgment on the false prophet. They're sent to the lake of fire. Now, we get a transition period here that covers the end point of the, of the tribulation. This confuses some people, so we have a little graphic here for everybody. The key verses here are understanding Daniel 12, 11, and 12. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, when is the regular sacrifice abolished in the tribulation period? Midpoint. Halfway through, the Antichrist ends the daily sacrifice, and this is when the abomination of desolation takes place. So from that point until the end, there's going to be 1,290 days. But the tribulation period is divided into basically two parts, three and a half years each, 1,260 days. So 1,290 days takes us 30 days beyond the end of the tribulation, this, the uh, battle of Armageddon and the return of Christ. And then verse 12 says, How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. So that takes us beyond by another 45 days. So what's going on during this 75-day interval? 1,290 minus 1,260 is 30. And then you have the other 45 days mentioned in uh, Daniel 12.12. So that gives you 75 days. So we'll look at the 75-day interval. Well, in the tribulation period, we have that 70th week, one week, which is seven years, divided into two uh, 1,260-day periods. Now, if we start counting from the midpoint, the time of the abomination of desolation, then we have 1,260 days until the second coming. Then there's going to be a cleansing of the temple that's going to take place 30 days from the 1,260 days until the temple is cleansed, which is the 1,290th day. That's what the verse refers to. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's related to the cleansing of the temple. Then we have the judgment of the nations in that last 45 days, and that culminates at 1,335 days. So there, that puts the last period in there. So that's our our 75-day interval. The purpose is to cleanse the temple during the first 30 days, and then the judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goat judgment, takes place during the next uh, 45 days. So anyone who survives to the 1,335th day are those who are going to go into the millennial kingdom. That's why uh, Revelation 12, uh, 12 says, I didn't realize all that was. Okay, Revelation 12, 12 says, Blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days because he's the one who's going to enter in to the 100-year reign of Christ. Okay, any questions on that? Yeah, Tinker. Do believers have the opportunity to accept Christ? No. 
It's done for them. Yeah. Yeah. So this is for the the cleansing of the temple, and then the judgment on the sheep and the goats takes place uh, during the last uh, 45 days. And so at, by the end of the uh, campaign of Armageddon, that's that's it. No no more options. Because they're still there. Because I, they, I don't know if they're, where they're going to be. Or they've been removed and they're in a holding pit. It doesn't address it anywhere in Scripture, so I'm not sure. Any other questions? Yeah. What does that mean unless the time has been shortened? Unless the time has been, uh, that's not in this passage. That's in Matthew 24. That, that is a, I believe that's a figure of speech where Jesus is emphasizing there that, that, that if, if what ends the campaign of Armageddon is that he interrupts everything by returning. And if he didn't interrupt everything at that point and it had gone on, then it, mankind would completely obliterate itself. Okay, now I've got one other slide here I want to run through just to kind of put things together at the end. At the end, there are eight judgments and five resurrections. So we have the church age ends with the rapture, and this is the first judgment that occurs after the rapture, which is the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, when all church age believers are evaluated in terms of their rewards and their future uh, rule and reign in the kingdom of God. This doesn't decide their future destiny, heaven or hell, heaven or the lake of fire, rather. It decides their role in the future. So that's the first judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Then that's followed, or that happens, I believe, before the tribulation begins. It doesn't take long because we're not bound by a human chronology or, or chronometer. We're going to be in heaven, and so it may appear to us to last a long time, but in reference to human time, it would just take place uh, very quickly. If you remember from the Revelation series, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, there is the, the presence of the 24 elders, and I believe the 24 elders are representatives of the church in heaven, they are performing a representative function in the worship in the, hev- in, in, in the throne of God in heaven. And they have received, at the very beginning of Revelation 4, they have received their crowns. They have Stephanos crowns, not Diademos crowns. Stephanos, cro- Stephanos crowns are crowns related to rewards. Diademos crowns are crowns related to, to rule. So they've received their rewards and they cast their Stephanos crowns before the throne of God. So that indicates that they've all, the church is already raptured and rewarded uh, by that time, by Revelation 4. So the rapture occurs and then the Bema Seat takes place very rapidly. Then we have the tribulation. Then the, um, this is called the first resurrection. Uh, which involves the the first fruits, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The second uh, aspect of it is the rapture. Then you have the two witnesses that are, it take uh, that are resurrected at the midpoint of the tribulation, and then Old Testament saints are resurrected at the end of the of the tribu- tribulation. So that's just treated as one 
uh, one resurrection. Then you have the second judgment, which is the sheep and the goat judgment. Then you have the Antichrist sent to the lake of fire. That's the third judgment. The false prophet goes to the lake of fire. That's the fifth judgment. Surviving Gentiles, that's the sixth judgment. Surviving Jews, that's the seventh judgment. And then Old Testament saints are evaluated. We get that from Daniel 12.1. So those are your eight judgments that all take place. And so this series of judgments here takes place during that uh, 45-day period there during the transition from the tribulation to the establishment of the kingdom. Then the millennial kingdom begins, and this lasts uh, for a thousand years, and you have a second resurrection of the unsaved, and this takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom uh, with the great white throne judgment. So technically this gives us five, five resurrections, Christ, the rapture of church-age believers, the two witnesses, Old Testament saints, and then the second resurrection of the unsaved at the great white throne judgment. Uh, the unsaved dead are evaluated, and then Satan is sent to the uh, lake of fire. He's been in, um, he's been in the abyss during the millennial kingdom, and then he's released at the end, where he, he foments a rebellion, and then he's judged and now dispatched to the lake of fire. All right, that brings us to a, the last basic topic. I don't think we'll get it all covered tonight, since we only have about six or seven minutes left but we have the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. And it's important to understand this is as different as the period before the flood. It's almost as and there's a rollback of the curse, not completely, but to some degree. One of the results of the curse was, of course, hostility within the animal kingdom. I don't think that happened automatically instantly, but it certainly is at play after the uh, Noahic flood. And now we're going to see the lamb will lie down with the wolf. That scenario hasn't uh, taken place since at least the flood, probably not to, since, since the fall. So there are going to be certain aspects of the curse that are rolled back during the tribulation period and are not going to be uh, be in effect anymore. So it's not going to be perfect environment like the Garden of Eden, but it's not going to be as cursed as the period after the fall and certainly not as cursed as the period after the flood, which is the time frame in which we live. So it's going to be a different kind of, uh, of environment. So the first thing that we see is that when we talk about the kingdom, it's really the first phase of two phases in relation to the kingdom. It's the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth that ends with the great white throne judgment and then with the destruction of the present heavens and new earth and the creation of a new heavens and new earth which goes into eternity. So phase one of the kingdom is the messianic or millennial kingdom and then phase two is the eternal state and that's described in Revelation uh, 21 and 22. Now, what's the purpose for the millennial kingdom? This is really important to understand. First of all, it, the one purpose is to fulfill God's promises to Israel. 
God has not forgotten Israel. God has not gone back on his promises. God, in order to establish his integrity, is going to fulfill every promise he's made to Israel. And those will be fulfilled in the future. Jesus uh, alluded to this several times in his, his ministry, talking about the fact that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that, he, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive in, as, as Old Testament saints and that they would have a future where, where they would be resurrected and receive the promises of God that were never given to them during their lifetime. A second purpose is that it demonstrates that God alone can rule his creation. This is the ultimate issue in the angelic conflict, taking us all the way back to the beginning of our, of our study of God's plan for the ages. When Satan fell, the cause of his fall was his arrogance, that he wanted to do what only God can do. He wanted to be thought of as God. This is Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, the five I wills of Satan. He wanted to be able to rule the creation. But only God is omniscient and omnipotent, and only an omniscient, omnipotent creator can rule his creation. What Satan is seeing in his, in his attempt to rule is that he can't control 10 billion volitions, 10 billion people who want to be God themselves and rule everything. And so all of the chaos all of the wars, all of the famines, all of the uh, conflicts that we see in human history simply demonstrate that Satan cannot rule his creation. It is impossible. Every time there are these failures, it is an indication that Satan is a failure. He can't rule his creation. He may be temporarily the prince and the power of the air, but he can't run things. Everything he does uh, is destroyed. So the millennial kingdom teaches that only God can rule his creation. Man can't. Even under the perfect environment of the millennial kingdom with Satan taken off of the scene, uh, things still fall apart because individuals will be born with their own volition and they will choose to go against God. This is the third purpose. The millennium, millennial, millennial kingdom demonstrates that it is sin and volition, not environment. It's not which political party rules. It's not education. It's not economics that cause the breakdown of society because economics will be perfect and politics will be perfect. Government will be perfect. The judicial system will be perfect. The education system will be perfect. People can't blame anything other than their own bad decisions. And so the millennial kingdom is sort of the crowning argument on the fact that the reason things are screwed up for mankind is because they make bad decisions and they bring about the consequences. A third thing that we see is the description of the government. Uh, they as John depicts in Revelation 24, he says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And these are, this is the church age believers. They, and at the end of the verse, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We will rule and reign with him and we are going to be responsible for the government of, uh, of the world. We see this also in verse 6. We shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
This is another verse that relates to the priesthood of the church-age believer. So we see that Jesus was going to reign as king from the throne of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, there's a series of verses there, Psalm 2, 1 through 9, which is a central passage. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, we've looked at already, 11, 1 through 2. Isaiah 55, 3, 55, 11. Jeremiah 23, 5 to 8. Jeremiah 23, 20 to 26. Ezekiel 34, 23 to 25. 37, 23 to 24. And Luke 1, 32 to 33. Now, the only two that I'm going to reference are Psalm 2 and Luke 1 because we've looked at these others related to all of the promises related to the branch of David, the house of David, the fallen booth of David. All of those indicate that the Messiah is going to rule. But I haven't looked at Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verse 6, God says, God the Father says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Zion is a synonym for Jerusalem. So God is going to establish his king over Jerusalem. And the nature of that rule is described in Psalm 2.9. You shall break them. You is talking to the, he's talking to the Messiah. You shall break them with a rod of iron. He is going to cause the nations to submit to him. This is what takes place at the campaign of Armageddon. And then in Luke 1:32 to 33, in the announcement to Mary about the fact that she's going to give birth uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, Gabriel says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So clearly indicating he's going to rule in fulfillment of that Davidic promise, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the announcement at Jesus' birth focuses on his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And then uh, this last point, this is kind of a fun point, uh, Israel will be united and Jerusalem will be the center of the nation. This is described in Ezekiel chapter 37. That's the dry bones passage. But there's something else interesting going on in the dry bones passage in Ezekiel 37 that you need to understand and be able to work through. And since it's already 834, we're going to wait and do that next time. But I got hung on this passage because there's a cult that will knock on your door. And if you don't understand Ezekiel 37, you're going to sit there going, uh... Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And like a lot of Christians, you may get sucked in, and next thing you know, you'll be a Mormon, and Joseph Smith will have won another victory. So next time, we'll start with Ezekiel 37. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to realize that you are faithful to your promises, to your covenants with Israel, and that they will be fulfilled in the future and a remarkable shift in civilizations to the millennial kingdom, something quite different from what we experience today, but one that will be glorious and one that will bring great glory to yourself. Father, we pray that we might be challenged as we study this because we will be very much a part of that future kingdom as we rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. But ruling and reigning is a privilege that will go to those who are overcomers, those who have lived their life in a way in this church age that brings glory to you and where we have that which is rewardable in terms of divine good 
at the judgment seat of Christ. So challenge us to live our lives today in light of this eternal reality. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.